Welcome to the eighth episode of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Today I'm talking about G.W. Papp's Die Freudlose Gasse, also known as The Joyless Street from 1925, starring Aston Nielsen and Greta Garbo. Set in post-war Vienna in 1921, Papp's trains a gimlet eye on the mass desperation amid food shortages and rampant black marketeering. The film illustrates how women absorb greater hardships during social and economic disasters. Vienna's villains trade upon flesh, whether it's the local butcher, brothel madam, or rich men who pay for young women. One of the most striking things about Papp's depiction of the calamity in Vienna is how the storyline places women at the center, as the active agents, the ones who make decisions and get things done. The film adopts the woman's point of view to show how they cope with social collapse, By sharp contrast, the men at large appear passive and oblivious to the real material conditions of life in Vienna. The men on screen see what they want to see, they wear blinders, or have the luxury of not meeting the grim daily realities. Paps aligns the viewer's sympathies with women, who scramble to put food on the table, no matter what the cost. Paps calls close attention to the marginal spaces his characters occupy. We see dark, narrow alleyways in the Melchior Gasa district. The poor live in basements, stables, attics, and they spend their time queuing on the streets with inadequate clothing and empty stomachs. The seedy Melchior Hotel serves as a secret rendezvous for rich folks who are slumming it, who want to feel as though they brush shoulders with danger. Madame Greifer's dress shop, with a mannequin in the window that looks like a gargantuan wrestler, conceals a private club that fronts for a brothel in the back. Greifer's dresses and coats are a honeypot to lure in a fresh stock of desperate women who may be coerced into sex work. Greifer's tiny shop front expands into a large maze of interconnecting spaces, up the stairs and through a raucous barroom. Doors lead to tiny rooms and other doors, which lead to secret curtains and private screens that close off space. Greifer orchestrates multiple hidden arenas for rich men to stage their appetites. The brothel section composes faux parlors set for afternoon tea, a benign middle-class decor that serves to lull new sex workers into a false sense of security, with meetings with men who pay to ravage them after tea and cake. A bordello red velvet backdrop would have been more honest and less sinister than Greifer's decorative decoy. The other shop on the street sees more action outside than inside. The butcher, Geiringer, controls the only source of meat in the district. His shop is so exclusive, he may as well have a red carpet and ropes out front to restrict the entry to elite clientele. He instructs the police to brutalize half-starved customers who queue overnight for a cut of meat. He advertises frozen Argentinian meat and then sells out in minutes. Geiringer's thick oiled hair and handlebar mustache make him look like a grotesque carnival sideshow barker or a penny dreadful character from the back streets like Sweeney Todd. His entire aspect spells doom. Vienna's poor look listless, defeated, and fragile. They huddle together on the street, hoping for something to eat rather than stewed cabbage. 
Maria, played by Asta Nielsen, and her family live in a gloomy basement. She endures her father's beatings when he strikes her with a cane. He threatens she better not return home without food. As the man of the house, he can order women about and avoid the dispiriting search for food. Greta, played by Greta Garbo, lives on the first floor of the same building, which suggests they're better off in rooms that are larger and brighter than below street level. Greta lives with her younger sister and a doddering father who's childlike and resigns his post for a redundancy package of two years' salary in cash, which he then spends like a drunken sailor. He amasses debts and gambles recklessly by speculating on dubious stocks. He holds steadfast to concepts of honor while his daughters starve. Greta stands all night in a food queue before she works in the morning as an office typist. Elsa, played by Hertha von Walter, has a husband so wan and anemic, he looks barely able to hold his head up, let alone be any help looking after their nursing child. Elsa, her husband, and infant are unemployed and homeless, bedded down in a stable, like a grim update to the mysticism about a holy family seeking refuge in a manger. No one calls or visits or brings gifts. They are cast out at death's door, and only Elsa can keep them alive. Even with the rich women, the banker's daughter Regina, played by Agnes Esterhousy, or the lawyer's wife Leah, played by Tamara Geva, the men they are connected to fail to recognize what's important or what's really happening. We see male authority present in commerce, the law, civil service, and military, and they estimate women's virtue in a clumsy, primitive, simplistic economy, one that exchanges character traits for a single standard that measures their sexual exclusivity. In practice, it means it's much easier to blame women who trade sex for food rather than a society that values profit over human welfare. Pabst film asks us to consider, what does honor mean while people starve? You don't have to look far to find people discussing this film today who characterize Maria as a bad or fallen woman because she takes up sex work, and that Greta is the heroine because she holds on to her virginity. The Madonna whore coin is still tossed in contemporary estimations of women's worth. You could get rid of bed bugs easier. Paps doesn't lead us to such reductive conclusions. Instead, he argues that once the social fabric unwinds, any hope women have to gain purchase on a label such as respectability becomes wholly compromised. Options for women outside the bourgeoisie narrow to the gutter or brothel. Women are viewed as just another piece of meat. Elsa takes the only option left for her family when she trades Geiringer, the butcher, sex for meat. After the queue of shawled women were run off when Geiringer said he was sold out, Elsa and Maria notice two women knock on the butcher's basement window. His eye appraises the pair as though they were under his thumb on the scale. The women wear heels, hosiery, flashy dresses, and smart coats. They are working girls, not half-starved under rags like Elsa and Maria. They swagger, plump and cocky, out of his shop with their dinner. Rather than face an ashen husband and screaming child, Elsa pleasures the butcher in the meat locker right next to all the other hanging bits of flesh. While Elsa's in the meat locker, Maria looks around in horror at the shop's design and the massive dog who stands guard while the butcher gets his cut, like a one-headed Cerberus. 
Maria and Elsa are both out of their depths in this hellish subterranean abattoir. Maria chokes back a scream. Elsa waits impassively after their transaction as he leers, takes his cleaver, and hacks off a cut of beef. Guyringer doesn't even wrap it for her in paper. He just throws it to Elsa, the same way he does to his dog when Maria rejects his piece of meat. As desperate as her circumstances, Elsa doesn't stop being kind. Back in the stable, she tells her husband to cut off half for Maria, who in turn is so horrified by their desperate state that she insists they keep the meat and runs off. What can Maria do next? She cannot endure another beating at home, and even if her father spares the cane on her back, she'll still have to listen to his abuse. So she beseeches her beau Egon, a bank clerk, paid by Henry Stewart, to let her live with him. She assures him she'll do everything to serve him and make his life easier. What does he want, she asks. $100 would be ideal. In his calculations, he needs an initial sum to invest in the stock market, which will double from one week to the next until he's wealthy. Paps presents the stock market as a blind gamble, as heedless as any back alley roll of the dice. Men who buy stocks never seem to worry about the risks involved. They remain so convinced of their wisdom and their own strategy. They will always be the exception. Everyone else may lose their shirt, but individual men know how to play the system. Ungoverned by ethics, trading amounts to a dog-eat-dog pylon of opportunists. The rich Don Alfonso, played by Rob Garrison, conspires with Rosenal the banker to rig coal price shares with rumors about a strike, which they will then manipulate for their own profit. Even when only discussed between these two men, viewers glimpse the larger feeding frenzy born of schemes drenched with macho hubris on the trading floor of every major city in the world. Back to Egon, the private secretary. Since he made his grandest wish so simple, Maria vows to get it for him. He waves her off as a foolish woman and seems to forget all about her. He's in pursuit of wealth and an unattainable socialite. Maria has Egon's dream in mind when she calls on the dress shop owner, Frau Greifer, played by the wonderfully devious Valeska Gert. The madam's smile spins cobwebs for hard luck women. When Maria waits for Frau Greifer, Don Alfonso, the man who intends to profit from the Viennese collapse, looks her over, peels off a bill, and dangles it as though it were a lamb chop to lure Maria. When you see what your heart's desire holds most dear, few would pause over what must be done to get it. Maria doesn't even have a coat. She had given away her thin shawl to Elsa's baby, but she hasn't thought of her own needs. She's on an errand for love and will soon be disabused of how little her sacrifice means to an unworthy man. Maria takes the bill and agrees to accompany the man to a nearby hotel. In a later scene, when they return to the Melchior Hotel, after Maria has been made over by the robber baron, he tried to buy her with jewels and clothes, yet she showed no interest in anything. Strangely, the less enthusiasm Maria exhibited, the more he wanted to spend. Maria looks completely disassociated from her surroundings. She's thinking about what she's done and how it means she'll never have Egon as her own. But she looks fabulous. Asta Nielsen wears a crown of bold blonde curls, one that no doubt inspired Marlena Dietrich's wig for the opening nightclub act in Blonde Venus in 1932. 
A shimmering headband of marcasites cast in silver drapes across her forehead to better offset the shock of curls. She's jeweled in teardrop earrings and a double strand of pearls with a beaded silk gown. No longer a street urchin in shapeless rags, Asta's visage is modern and regal. She's outfitted as an art deco queen. At one point in the seedy hotel room, she abandons her somnambulant repose momentarily to demonstrate to the Don how she witnessed a murder in the next room when they were last there. She climbs on top of the John and simulates strangulation. Tinged with eroticism, Maria bucks and writhes over the Don, as he would have liked her to have done during sex. Now her actions mimic the death throes she'd love to make happen. She's a destroyer goddess in this scene, a sublime vision of rage and retribution. Greta, by contrast, never loses her temper in the film, perhaps because she enjoys greater social mobility than Maria or Elsa. They may be hungry and poor, but they have a professional background. Greta's family has a spacious flat, even if they have a monotonous diet of cabbage. When Greta faints in the overnight queue outside the butcher shop, she's carried back to her flat and laid out on a settee as though she were a martyr. With her eyes rimmed in coal and limbs draped on the faded upholstery, she looks like she was taken from the cross, a portrait in suffering. Garbo has a face that looks beatified, one sculptors referenced when they cast the saints. As Paps remark, she has a face that comes along once in a century. In the office typing pool, Greta has a preview of the brothel without knowing it. Any space can accommodate sexual encounters if men want it that way. When her decades-older boss calls her upstairs to his office, the dark shades hide what goes on behind a closed door. His authority gives him the power to extend business to include the sex trade. He's one in a long line of office managers who poach from the typing pool as their own personal harem to coax into their lap. By mid-century, the familiar lecherous suit became Brian Ahern's Mr. Shalimar in The Best of Everything from 1959, or Mr. Sheldrake, played by Fred McMurray in The Apartment from 1960. We could also include 9 to 5 and more recently Secretary, in the way film has recognized men who chase women around a desk for a living. The boss has drawn conclusions about Greta, believing she's out all night partying rather than feigning in the queue for meat. No doubt his certainty of her evening exploits comes from firsthand knowledge of what other women have to do to get by. The boss tucks cash in her front pocket as though she were wearing a G-string. He's clearly grooming her for more than dictation. Greta's so tired and hungry that she doesn't even notice the money, but the other women on staff do notice, and they draw their own conclusions about Greta. Greta's father, drunk on banknotes and real food, insists that Greta go to the dress shop and buy a new coat on credit because, he declares, they have suffered long enough. He means well, except his orders are as short-sighted as his plan for playing the stock market. The coat Greta already owns seems worn thin. Perhaps she recalls when the office girls laughed at it, and so she agrees to an upgrade. As soon as she enters the dress shop, Greifer's eyes stay locked on her. The madam doesn't pick a wool or a cloth coat for the luminous beauty. 
standing in front of her. She picks out a sumptuous fur with delicately stitched pelts and asks her to try it on. When Garbo hesitates, worried about the cost, Greifer eyeballs her assistant and says with a straight face, Have I ever pressured anyone when they can't pay right away? Greta's won over. It's horrible to be hungry, but close to intolerable to be cold and hungry. Viewers know that the coat will cost Greta more than money, the way Greifer tallies a bill. The next day at work, Greta begins to pay for that coat. She thinks nothing of wearing it to the office, but everyone reacts strongly to the sight of a luxurious coat in the middle of an economic tailspin. Gossip in the typing pool goes into overdrive. Called upstairs, the boss assumes she can be bought and starts pawing her, insisting that he doesn't believe she doesn't have a boyfriend. The boss views the coat as evidence that she trades sex for favors. Angry that he hasn't succeeded where some other man has, he fires Greta. We'll see the scene repeated almost exactly in Preston Sturgis's comedy Easy Living with Jean Arthur in 1937. Men in authority presume the right to make judgments about a woman's virtue based on her wardrobe. Unlike her father, who retreated from reality once he lost his job and then his severance package, Greta decides to advertise the front parlor, their best room for rent, and hangs a notice in the street. Their prayers seem to be answered when a young American soldier accepts the room, handing over $60 per month of his rent allowance. It should have been plenty of money to save them, if not for her father's debts that made them wretched once more. The director swings back and forth between the wealthy and the poor to underscore the vast difference in conditions. Somehow, though, the rich folk look less alike and less distinctive than those most affected by the social catastrophe. Each woman of the bourgeoisie has the same cut of dress, drop waist, with a hemline below the knee. They all resemble each other. The women who are bereft nonetheless have traces of their former selves from better days, despite the shabby clothes they wear. Greta's coat may now be worn thin, but once it was lined with soft pelts. Elsa may be ragged from nursing while undernourished, but she still has a delicate beauty that stands out. Geiringer sees it too, and looks at her with more desire than the women in fashionable clothes. Maria's plain shift and bright eyes highlight how self-possessed she is even when she's being ravaged by a ham-fisted capitalist. Nazis destroyed all copies of the film in Germany. The restoration process for The Joyless Street commenced in 1989 and took 20 years to finish. The team scoured the globe for foreign prints, which they pieced together. From the original three-hour runtime, only two and a half hours remain. The rest is lost. They recovered only five of the original 200 inner titles and had to recreate the rest from the script. You'll notice American versions that are edited down to an hour on YouTube. Avoid them. Those edited prints are also really dark. Get a copy of the restored DVD. Papp succeeds in capturing a realistic portrait of what scarcity does to people and how it leaves them open to the worst forms of exploitation. According to Louise Brooks in her essay collection, Lulu in Hollywood, when she went to film Pandora's box, Papp showed her a little cupboard full of Garbo pictures that he had kept as a shrine to his former leading lady. 
It's not hard to predict how high Garbo Star would climb from watching the joyless street. But Asta Nielsen earns our tears as a woman with nothing who throws it all away for the wrong man. I'll close this episode with a brief passage from Garbo, the biography by Barry Paris. After Stiller read the script, he summoned Paps and told him, That with this film, he had a chance of becoming very big, said Sorkin. But he was worried the Paps had miscast Garbo. He said, I gave you Greta Garbo only to make money, but I cannot let you ruin it. He wanted to give us back the contract. Paps answered him, I am not afraid. I shall manage it. It's none of your business. Stiller then gave Paps the most important idea for the film, the fur coat. Before, it was just a regular coat. Stiller suggested, give her an expensive fur coat. She can never have the money to pay for a fur coat. A regular coat is just a coat. How can you explain in the movie that it is expensive? It's not photogenic, but a good fur coat, that you can see. Shooting began in March 1925. On the first day, Garbo was nervous and so was Paps when he saw the results. Due to her fair complexion and the fact that Germans use much stronger lights than the Swedes, she did not photograph well. When we got our first rushes, we saw nothing special, said Sorkin. Paps wanted the same photography that she had in Gosta Berling, so we asked Stiller to come to the studio, and he tried to explain the light for her. Stiller explained, none too patiently, that Garbo's face required only the best Kodak film, not the German Agfa stock that they were using. Though much more expensive and nowhere to be found in Berlin, some Kodak Pathé film was located in Paris and thenceforth sent in daily. That they left the problem with Sieber, the dean of German cinematographers, whose landmark film credits included The Student of Prague, The Gollum, and Friedekrust Rex. During Stiller's visit to the set, he lectured Sieber as if I'd never been behind the camera in my life. He seemed more wrought up than the frightened young woman he was so worried about. Sieber was a fine technician who knew all the optical tricks that, in those days before the special effects laboratory, had to be executed by the cameraman during shooting. But his lighting was not exceptional, and Paps knew it. He understood the symbiosis of light and camera, and now, for one of the first times, he separated those functions, hiring a specialist named Ertl, who soon discovered Garbo's optimum light mix. Paps and his crew rose to every Garbo challenge. In addition to the lighting difficulties, they were chagrined to discover that when filmed in close-up, she developed a visible nervous tick in her cheek. Their first shots were unusable. Stiller had had the same trouble and advised Paps to crank faster, thus eliminating the twitch by trickery, until she could overcome the nervousness which caused it. No one in the cast but Asta Nielsen thought Garbo was worth all the trouble. When she remarked on the girl's beauty, Paps agreed and replied, Such a face you see once in a century. With his new improved camera results, he coaxed her into the projection room to watch rushes, complimenting her and bolstering her confidence while embellishing her part. They worked 16-hour days, and though Garbo was invariably up late being coached by Stiller the night before, she was always the first to arrive on set each morning. The joyless street was completed in just 34 days. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time when I talk about Ladies in Retirement, starring Ida Lupino from 1941. Thanks very much.